This morning, as we finish up our series in 1 John, we're looking at 1 John chapter 5 with the viewpoint of sharing in God's victory. I don't know about you, we like to share in victory. We like to, uh, whatever it might be, whether we play sports ourselves, uh, some of us getting a little older, you know, can't play ourselves anymore. Maybe we enjoy a victory of watching our sports team, whether it's football, soccer, hockey, um, baseball, whatever we enjoy. We like to participate in victory. Um, victory is a triumph over a struggle or a competition. And uh, we can do this in many ways. We talked about having victory in sports. Maybe we have victory over a difficult project or task. Victory in reconciling a relationship conquering a bad habit, and being Mother's Day. Mothers have lots of victories as well. Um, When they finally get their kids to sleep through the night, you know, get a full night's sleep, that's always good. Have some victories when the kids remember to finally put the toilet seat down. It's always a good one. Um, Kids get to do their schoolwork uh, on their own. Maybe go off to college, and they can share in the fact that they graduated and done well. We have victories in watching our kids grow in the Lord. But this morning, we're going to talk about three victories we can share with God and that we have in him. One is victory over death. Two is victory over sin. And the last will be victory over this world or the world. We'll start by looking at verses three through five in chapter five of first John. It says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So who can share in God's victory? Well, it's those who are born of God, those who are part of God's family. And how? Well, how? It's by faith. And so we look at this with the rest of scripture, this is very true, right? We have faith and we come, we get saved and we're part of God's family. It harmonizes very well. In fact, this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He's a little confused about how it means to be born again, right? But we're then born into God's, God's family. So let's take a look at sharing in victory over death. This is probably the way we mostly think about sharing in victory. I will say it's probably, it is, in my view, the easiest of the three, um, one of the things is nice, it's always nice to dream and think about how things can be better. And this gives us the ability to do so, right? We have victory over death or the second death. So we think about things of spending eternity in heaven, spending, spending eternity with Christ, not having to deal with these physical bodies anymore that ache and hurt, not having to deal with sin in heaven in eternity, not having to deal with the cares of this world, such as the pandemic and disease, For some of us, that may be work, uh, financial issues. On a positive note, we get to worship the Savior in person. Can you imagine what we did here this morning, right, and doing it in heaven and worshiping our Lord and Savior? We look forward to the future. We enjoy doing these things. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us in familiar verses, and starting with 53, says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then the perishable, when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is possible because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that we're no longer under the law. The law says, if you sin, even just once, then you have to pay the penalty. And the penalty of sin is death. But as we celebrated just a few weeks ago, a month, month and a half ago of Easter, we celebrated the fact that Jesus rose and was resurrected and conquered death for us. So we can all say, I hope here this morning, say death was swallowed up in victory. Where is your sting? I like how John phrases this in verse 12 of chapter 5. He makes a statement. And it's not an open-ended statement. The statement is, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What do I mean by it's not open-ended? Well, an open-ended statement might say, whoever has the Son has life. And you may say, well, what happens if you don't have the Son? You're not really sure. You may, is there another way? And the answer is no, there's not, because John doesn't phrase it like that. He phrases it, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So there's only one way when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to share in his victory, to be part of his family. So we have victory over death because Jesus conquered death. And we can all share equally in this victory by simply having faith. As I mentioned before, I think this is probably the easiest way to share in God's victory is victory over over death. Having victory over sin and victory over this world requires a little more effort, self-evaluation, adjustment, Correction, if I could use that term. We've seen this a few times in First John. It was mentioned, I believe, by most of the people who spoke. There are statements in John saying, if you are, if you believe in me, or if you're a Christian, then you shall, for example, walk in the light. You shall do this. You should be evaluating, evaluate yourself so you know where you stand. Right? So we have another one of these right in the beginning of chapter 5 of First John. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments aren't burdensome. So he's challenging us to evaluate ourselves to know where we're at. If we claim we're Christians, do we claim we're walking with the Lord? Do we love God? Do we love each other? Do we obey his commands? Over the last couple of years at work, um, I've dealt a lot with cybersecurity. We have to do. In fact, last night I saw that the uh, pipeline that feeds the East Coast was just hacked. Um, Do a lot with cybersecurity. And part of it is to improve your cybersecurity posture. So there's a process we have to go through on a weekly, monthly, semi-annually, yearly basis, constantly doing this. So I'll tell you the process. The first step is to identify or to perform an evaluation because you need to know where you're at in order to do anything and know where you're going. The second is to analyze, identify gaps or analyze is the second step. And then you take where you are and you see where you should be and you identify gaps. Some of them are good gaps. You're ahead. Some probably a little low. And then you come up with a plan. You prioritize what needs to be adjusted and corrected. And then you implement the plan, and then you get to start all over and do this over again, over again, endlessly, right? And sometimes it seems like a lot. But for us as Christians, if we don't evaluate ourselves and know where we are, how do we know where we need to go? 
John's telling us where we should be going. The Bible gives us instructions of where we need to go. But if we don't evaluate ourselves, we don't know. And he says at the end of this that his commandments should not be burdensome, right? And I'm going to say that this process shouldn't necessarily be a burden to us. We'll talk about the difference between something that is a burden causes us great grief or distress. There is, I want to make a clarification. Just because something's hard, difficult, and requires a lot of effort doesn't mean it has to be a burden to you. Tasks can be difficult or hard, right? But it's our mindset and willingness to do it, and particularly willing to do this in love. So a great example of this, which I actually got from Dr. Dave Reed, fits very well this morning, are mothers. So here on Mother's Day, I'll read a, a poem by Helen Rice. It says, a mother's love is something that no one can explain. It is made of deep devotion, of sacrifice and pain. It is endless and unselfish and endearing, come what may, for nothing can destroy it or take that love away. A lot of times, I'll tell you right now, being a mother, right, my own wife, isn't easy. It's a lot of effort, you know, getting up in the middle of the night, feeding kids, changing diapers, cleaning up vomit, sometimes on you, true story. Teaching your kids to grow in knowledge and the knowledge of the Lord. Healing wounds, physical wounds, mental counseling. Being a mother isn't easy, but a mother, a loving mother who cares for her children, does it because she wants to. You see the difference about something being, being so burdensome that you don't want to do it? It comes down to, I think, effort and your love that you want to make a difference. So there's a difference between something being difficult and being a burden. I'm going to say having victory over sin and over the world may not be easy, but it really shouldn't be a burden. There should be a desire for us to do so. So we'll start by looking at victory over sin. And I want to make, again, a clarification that when I say victory over death, this is that our sins were paid for. So now when we stand in heaven, we can say that we know the Savior. He paid for our sins. And that's victory over death. Victory over sin, what I'm talking about this morning, is more of a sanctification process that we are um, trying to be more holy like God in our lives. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So the goal is that sin doesn't reign in your life anymore. This doesn't mean that we will never sin, but that we don't let sin reign in our lives continually. And for each and every one of us, that may look differently. We all have sinful desires. We all, by nature, want to please ourselves, but it may manifest itself in different ways. And for some of us, they may be more public ways, other ones more less public or private. So, for example, pridefulness, that's what, um, what you struggle with. That may be something that's more public that people see. Maybe you don't see yourself. Other ones that may not be are lust or sexual sins or so forth may not be as public. 
or drunkenness, gluttony, anger, greed. The point I'm just trying to make here is that we all struggle with something. It may not be the exact same thing, but we're all in the same boat. We're all equal. We all have been saved by grace, no matter what we struggle with. And that we all, through Christ, have the opportunity, right, to, to uh, within him, to conquer sin. It is by nature to please ourselves. But look what Jesus says in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Part of sharing God's, God's victory is to deny ourselves as Jesus did, right? He was up in heaven. He denied himself the right to be equal to God, came down and died for our sins. That's part of it. Jesus tells his disciples, deny yourselves. He doesn't say once. He says daily. We want to share in God's victory. We should have some skin in the game. It's always more pleasing when you're playing the sport than watching it. This includes our fleshly desires. And I'm not talking about a list of right or wrong. And I don't think John's talking about that as well. He's giving us goals to vire ourselves to show love and kindness to others. So first, uh, our second Peter one tells us that we have this divine power to grow in godly qualities and have the ability to escape sinful desires. This is what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue, with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the lord jesus christ for whoever had lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blinded having forgotten he is cleansed from his former sins peter's encouraging us just to continually grow he says increase just take any step forward Right. Sometimes when I'm doing my cybersecurity evaluation. There's some things that are going to come easier. And there's some things that I'm going to be honest are brutal to do. There's just such large tasks when I'm given a bid spec. That's sometimes multiple documents this thick. Sometimes I just rip it apart, divide it in sections and just take little chunks at a time. He's saying make any step to increase and move forward, prevent you from being ineffective. And we need to evaluate ourselves to know where we're going, to know where we're ineffective. The goal necessary is to be perfect to overcome and never sin again. That would be great, right? But what he's saying here is that just make an effort to move forward. And when we fail, don't beat yourself up because we have an advocate with the Father who's paid for our sins. We're not to abuse that as we learn in Romans, right? But... The goal isn't to follow a list of rules We're not under the law anymore, but is to grow in the Lord and desire to be holy. This is how we have victory over sin in our lives. And we've been given the ability to do so by God's divine power. And through that, 
via the Holy Spirit. Having victory over the world, 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are from that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, overcoming the world doesn't mean that when I die, I go to heaven and now I don't have to live on this earth and I've overcome the world because I live in heaven. Overcoming the world means more of overcoming its lies, evilness, divisions. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So again, our faith is what allows us to overcome the world. And our faith should display what we've been talking about through 1 John. should display truth, joy, love, and grace. This is true for Christians as individuals in our lives and as a church overall. Overall, the church should be an example to the world how God intended the church to be a unified, loving body. The world seeks its own selfishness, desires. It causes dissension and division. We live in a world driven by social media, by cancel culture, a world that says you can only relate to people who think like you, look like you, have the same political view as you, have the same education as you, share in the same culture as you, have the same social standing as you. And I'm telling you, this is not what God intended for the family of God at all to be separated by such things. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He says we were reconciled to God in one man, in reference to the passage, Jew or Gentile. But for us, we're not to be separated by things such as denomination, race, education, or politics. In John 17, Jesus prays for us that we would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. So this is what he's saying. He's making a comparison that as a family of God, we should be unified as one, just like the Trinity. You know, the thing that we all struggle with to say, how can three things be one? That's how unified we should be. We're going through, I mentioned in the announcements at 730 Monday nights, uh, Steve Lamson's small group. I'm going to read a small passage that relates to this very well. We see a great example of this in the Bible. We're going through the book, The Deeply Formed Life. I believe this is from chapter three. This is a quick glance at two of the disciples bring forth this truth. Consider Matthew and Simon the Zealot. And he's referencing Matthew 10. Matthew worked for the government. Simon hated the government. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans. Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy. Simon, the working class. Matthew made a living taking advantage of people like Simon. Simon made a living trying to kill people like Matthew. 
Despite all these differences, somehow Matthew and Simon were able to remain connected, but it cost them something. Matthew had to stop taking advantage of people like Simon, and Simon had to embrace a different vision of revolution. This is the essence of the new family Jesus is and was creating. Reconciliation community will always cost us something, and in Christ, the barriers that separate us come down in his name. The world wants to divide, and Jesus said, no, I want to make you one. How can two people, Simon and Matthew, be so different and yet be unified? They're willing to deny themselves, as Jesus asked them to do, and put their faith into action. Matthew and Simon overcame the world. I will say there are sometimes I'm baffled at the divisions that happen in, in the church. And I broke these down to three um, three different types of division that take place. Sometimes they're preferences. They're silly things that we let get in the way of our relationship with one another. Now, some examples may be the color of the carpet we choose. It may be the refreshments at breaking of bread. Maybe the time that we start church. Maybe what songbook to use. Maybe what's, what type of worship music. Maybe that's more of a scruple we'll talk about in a second. But these things, it's not necessarily the preference themselves which divide us, but it's how we treat each other. Do we recognize that we're all equal in Christ? So I'll give an example. Silly example about a carpet. Say we decide to replace the carpet, and I want blue. Someone comes in, and they really want a different color. I basically push them aside and say, no, no, we're just going to have blue. So what happens? The carpet's blue. We've all moved on. Except for the person who, it wasn't that they didn't get their way, but they didn't feel like part of the decision if they were equal. Every time they walk into the church and now see the blue carpet are reminded how they're not actually equal, right? Come worship, right, the Savior, but there's something that is a daily reminder how they feel they're not accepted in the family of God. So let's deny ourselves our preferences for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the body of Christ. Scruples. Scruples are things that people feel very convicted about, but at the end of the day, aren't really doctrinally right or wrong. So, for example, um, maybe what type of bread to use for the communion. I'm not talking about rye or wheat, more of the sense of is it should be leavened or unleavened bread. At the end of the day, we're breaking bread, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. Wine or grape juice. This could be another example. Let's say we're so dogmatic because we say that Jesus turned water into wine, that we only serve wine. And we have someone come into our chapel who's a recovering alcoholic. Is it fair for them every Sunday when they want to try and break bread not to have the option for juice? No, it's not. Right. These things that we consider, let us unify us and care for one another instead of let these things divide us. And as for Matthew and Simon, we have some of the same things that try to divide us today, such as politics. I'm not going to get into politics. But these things can divide us. We take what we think someone's political view is, whether Republican or Democrat, and we say everything that they believe, I'm now putting on you and you, and you must believe everything. And we judge each other by that. And again, that's not what was intended. And I think Matthew and Simon are a good example of how we can overcome those things in our lives. And for the sake of the church. Let's deny ourselves, right, 
for the sake of the body of Christ. Let's overcome the world and its divisions. And lastly is scripture, passages in scripture. So I'm very careful here. I'm not talking about doctrinal truth. Doctrinal truth is when John says, he who has the son has life, he who does not have the son of God does not have life. But the reality is there are scriptures that are hard to interpret. There are scriptures that are hard to harmonize. And sometimes we get so dogmatic about it, even though we have a conversation, we acknowledge ourselves that we don't have it all figured out, but we're still very dogmatic, at least the divisions in the church. And we see this in Corinthians, right? Corinthians 1 says this, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean to say is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. That doesn't happen here, right? I hope that no one says, I follow Paul Hagen or Alney or Allen or John Denning, because I'm telling you what, if that is the case, you've broken the elders' hearts. We're all one in Christ, and we're all equal. Let's show the world how unified the body of Christ is. Let's overcome the world through this. And we, I think we acknowledge that we're all equal, but sometimes we don't always recognize maybe that it's a good thing. So I'll finish with this thought, and it's the parable um, in Matthew 20. It's the parable of the land, the master, right, who goes out and collects laborers to work in his vineyard. So early in the morning, I think it's like six, early in the morning he goes out and says that he's going to give a day's wages or a denarius to the workers. And every so many hours he goes out again and says the same thing. Throughout the whole day, he keeps going out until the very end. And I think the last group was only an hour's worth of work. And so at the end, the people who worked the longest, who he went and got first, they're very upset about this. Matthew 20, I'm going to read their response. Verse 11. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. The, these who were hired last only worked one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who bore the burden of work in the heat of the day. So their gripe is that the master made everybody equal. That's their gripe. They're right. He made everybody equal. He made sure that everyone's needs were met. Everyone who worked had a day's wage able to provide for their needs. We're all in the same boat. We're all equal. We're all sinners saved by grace. In God's eyes, we're all equal. Mentioned, I think Larry mentioned this morning about looking at Jesus through God's eyes. Maybe we should look at each other's through God's eyes. Sometimes we look at our own eyes and we get focused on our own preferences and scruples or whatever we have. And maybe it's a good thing to look at through the other person's point of view. That may help somewhat. But if we look at each other through Christ's view, right, that we're all special in his eyes, we're all saved by grace, and his grace is sufficient for all of us, we then can let these things that divide us not matter so much. So I'm inviting you this morning to share in God's victory together. And not because we will all die one day and go to heaven because we know Jesus is Savior. That is a true statement. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying, let's share in God's victory now. Right? Let's evaluate ourselves. One is individuals and one is as a community. Let's evaluate ourselves as individuals where we need to improve um, to overcome sin and also to overcome the world.
so that the world may see, you know, the light is what we've talked about in John. So I'll close with this. They may see the light, the truth, our joy, love, and God's grace amongst us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've paid for our sins and that you've given us divine power to overcome our sins in this world. We pray for the rest of the time this morning that we spend with our families. We thank you for the mothers, whether biological or those who just care. And we pray that we could all be, be examples like mothers, that we would put others before our own needs. We, uh, we, again, we thank you for this time this morning. In your name, amen.